tinfoil hat. Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Global controls will have to be imposed, and a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to Tinfoil Hat. We, we, we go deep, homeboy. Eric, open your mind. Drink from the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That's some interdimensional shit. Wake up, Aaron. This is only the beginning. Dude, you just blew my mind. And welcome to Tinfoil Hat. You know who I am. You know what I'm here to do. I'm here to rock. It's 2020. Uh, thank you guys so much for your support over the uh, last couple years. The show is just growing. Uh, you know, we're, we're we're trying to be everywhere. YouTube, Bitchu, and on Broken Simulation. So join us, follow us, love us, because we love you and we're working hard. The guests we have lined up over the next month are the best of the best. Today's guest is one of them. Uh, joining me uh, in studio is my partner in crime, the man, the myth, the Giraffe King, <laughs> XG, and the place to be, Xavier Guerrero. What's up, dude? Welcome back. Thank you. 2020. Oh, we're going to kill it. Dude, are, are you going with the Drake still? That's so 2019. Oh, I know. I got to choose. Mix it up, dude. Get? I think, honestly. Fohawk like you? I think Mexicans with mullets are the coolest things I've ever seen. <laughs> jo uh, join us on the ones and twos. The man who went uh, just MIA for two weeks wouldn't even take my car. Yelled <laughs> every time I called, uh, called me. Uh, every time I called him, he yelled at me like I was his mother walking in when he was watching. Looking at Playboys, <laughs> Mom, knock before you come in. Please welcome Johnny Woodard, everybody. What's up, man? Happy New Year, Johnny. Good to see. You. Are you glad to be back in the future, or do you miss North Carolina? Absolutely glad to be back. Yeah, it's, glad uh, to be back. Yeah, I know you always say that, but it is like time travel coming <laughs> from really the farm is. to LA. It really is. Everyone's like, "Hey, you want to watch Friends back in North Carolina?" <laughs> Friends, yeah, right. No, they're not even on Friends. They're still watching like Mash. Uh, honestly, you, like my you, dad watches old westerns on TV. Most do of you time. get a feeling of uh, uh, Napoleon Dynamite when you get home? Because I get that all the time. Yeah, there's a little of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the that's more of a Midwestern thing, but the haircuts, yeah, for sure. It's more like Joe Dirt or something. Yeah, know? for <laughs> sure. It is 100% that Jennifer Aniston is still alive and kicking. She yeah. doesn't even wear that yeah. haircut, and her haircut's Yeah, like, low. all the hairspray is getting sold is in, like, the southeast right now. For sure. <laughs> uh, guys, amazing things going on here at the show. We have some live shows coming up. I am this weekend at the House of Comedy in Arizona. Uh, just go to az.houseofcomedy.net and grab your tickets right now. Myself, Zane Helberg, and uh, my Andy, my friend Andy Seinberg. Yes, to, and an Armenian and two Jews. We'll be rocking Arizona. Come out and join it. Uh, both guys are two of my favorite people in comedy. I'm super excited. And the House of uh, Comedy is one of my favorite places to play. So come out for that. And then we're in we're in Fort Worth on Friday. What is that? January 24th. January 24th. We're coming back, Texas. My favorite state to gig in. Texas, we're at Fort Worth. We've moved from uh, Plano, where we moved from Plato, Plano to Fort Worth. The we're hyenas. doing a little bigger word. Hyenas, actually, the place to be. Eddie Bravo, myself, we're going to rock. And I'm going to put a local up. I want a local conspiracy comedian to hit me up. Send me links to your show. The funniest ones get to open the show. 
We got to get together on that one. And then the f- next day, we are in Oklahoma City, and we are Bricktown at Comedy Club. The Bricktown Comedy Club. We're doing a day show, 420, which I love. Mm-hmm. I like the 420 shows. So we're going to get in, get out. By the way, fun fact about OKC, I always like to find these, um, these what conspiracies are there. Dude, Bigfoot Wars of 1855. Please say more about that. We're going to get into that another day, but not today. Oh. Today we have other <laughs> days. Stop. 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 Um, I'm very excited. So, yeah, go check that out. A lot of amazing things going on in this world. And all of this is brought to you by our good friends at Blue Chew. Go to bluechew.com. That's right. Bluechew.com. Dude, do you like action? Do you like do you like sex? Do you like Blue Chew? Go to bluechew.com. Blue Chew offers men a performance enhancement for the bedroom. At bluechew.com, you can get the first chewable with the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. Chewables can work up to twice as fast. It only takes a few minutes to connect with bluechew.com affiliate physician and if you qualify, you get prescribed okay online quickly no in-person doctor visit that's right so for our listeners go visit bluechew.com get your first shipment free when you use the promo code tinfoil and then after that just pay five dollars shipping that's b-l-u-e b-l-u-e chew.com promo code tinfoil now listen if i was in the bigfoot wars of 2000 of 1855 I would want to rock an American boner by American-made companies, okay? I take the blue chew. I come locked and loaded. And you know what Bigfoot's going to know when he's up against a real man, okay? If you Bigfoot, how many do you think he needs? How many, how many does Bigfoot want? <laughs> Dude, these things are so powerful. Bigfoot only needs one. Man, if you take two of these, world's getting pregnant. I want to give one to Johnny as you go hang out with his lady, and we have a nice new baby running the ones and twos over here. Guys, if you love America, you love the ladies, you'll love Blue Chew. Take care, Blue Chew. And that's our business. Uh, Guys, we have a great show for you today. Uh, This topic that we're going to talk about, I could talk about to the end of days, okay? It is one of my favorite, favorite um, topics, and that is JFK. I feel like more and more... With all this information coming out, people are more and more uh, open-minded uh, to this to the idea that we in the conspiracy cons- conspiracy community know. And when I say cons- conspiracy community, I mean uh, news people, journalists, real researchers. Okay, we know that something went down there. Uh, he's a wonderful man. He's here to talk about a very interesting topic, which is the uh, garrison tapes and the JFK assassination. Please welcome John Barber, everybody. John, how are you? Can't hear him. I'm sorry. Too much. Uh, and uh, happy new year to you. And you are my second favorite, Sam. My first being Uncle Sam. And I must tell you, everybody in the government must watch your show an overdose in Viagra because they've been spreading it regularly. But I must tell you, I am delighted and delighted to be talking to you because you are a comic. Yes, thank and you. It, it is surprising to me the number of comics who are totally interested in this show. And it, it began uh, for me with... Um, with Freddie Prince. Do you remember Freddie Prince? Of course I remember Freddie Prince. 
he was a star of uh, Chico and the Man with Jack Albertson. And just a few days before he committed suicide, he did his last live interview on my show in Los Angeles. And when he committed suicide, he was watching the, the Zapruder film. And by far the most brilliant comedian when it came to making commentary and observations about the ass assassination was Bill Hicks. Yeah, he is, he is featured prominently in our documentary. It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which as we speak is a uh, two-year runaway hit on Amazon in spite of the fact that there's been no above-ground media coverage of this amazing film. And only six weeks ago at the Kappa conference in Dallas, uh, Oliver Stone three times publicly urged people to watch our documentary, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So thank you, thank you so much for having uh, me. Uh, before we get into this, John, I forgot to bring up that John has worked in Hollywood for a very long time. And this might be before your time, Johnny, but I remember this show. It was a big part of my life. Real people. Oh, bless your heart for that, because now you give me a chance. You plug your comedy performance. <laughs> this book is called, just out recently, my autobiography. It's called Your Mother's Not a Virgin. <laughs> 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 life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American television. And the title came about as a result of the first time I tried to book Jim Garrison on my morning show in 1970 in, in Los Angeles. So I'm ready to rock and roll to talk about this story, which is, I think, is the most, the third most important American story since the American Revolution and the Civil War, and that is the murder of John Kennedy and the solving of that crime by Jim Garrison. Uh, 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 John, I want to get into what this assassination, because this is a very, we've done JFK shows before, we've done analysis of everybody in the thing, and I, we can never do enough of it because... Uh, and we got this is a different angle that I've never heard of, and I'm super excited about getting into it. But uh, in my belief, the JFK assassination is a pivot, a change in how politics is ran in America. Uh, we are we're going through something right now uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, with Iran right now and how this uh, this moment in his administration seems to be. Uh, a pivot into a different direction of what we thought he was ver versus what I believe he might be doing right now, you know, and it's not a very popular stance in the, in the conspiracy community, but the JFK uh, assassination to me is the, basically the inviting of the uh, Dracula into your house the devil into your house. We see a basically, in my opinion, an inter inter international banking cabal start to come in and take kind of over American politics, the American empire, and all that stuff. What What is your opinion of like what this moment represents? Obviously, the assassination of the president of the United States is a huge thing, but I believe it's even more than that. Well, my opinions are only based on fact. I am agnostic about everything. I'm the only person I know who has an absolutely and total open mind. And I hate to say that to a comedian because it's like <laughs> a straight line to you. But the truth is, 
I do not know if there's no God, and I do not know if there is God. No, I feel that way about everything. And you know what 2020 means, what? Sam? What does it, it mean? It means you have clear vision. So we can only hope that we will have leaders in this country who have a clear vision to clean up the mess that has become America. You know, um, I'm going to uh, what I should tell you is just a couple of minutes about my background and how I happened to accidentally become the fellow that changed the face of American television by creating the first reality show, the most watched show in the history of American television, Real People, how I accidentally became the private writer to Frank Sinatra, and how I accidentally became the Boswell to Jim Garrison. And it all happened by accident. I must tell you, Sam, all the magnificent and wonderful things that have happened to me in my life all happened by accident, whereas all the disasters were the things <laughs> that I planned really, really well. So I'm going to tell you, just a, if you don't mind, just a little background about me so that people have an idea of who, of who is telling this story. All right. I'm in, dude. I'm into all of it, man. Do Everything it. you're saying, I'm like, yes. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, I was born in Toronto in 1933 in the Salvation Army Charity Ward. I came from a severely, severely broken family. It would have to improve dramatically just to be called dysfunctional. I was, <laughs> I, was, I was six years of age before I knew my name wasn't. Hey, that's enough. And in 1939... My father joined the Canadian Army to go to the peace and quiet of World War II, and I was left with a, a nymphomaniacal, beer-drinking, alcoholic mother who brought uncles home to me like they were grapes. They came in bunches, and mostly to bed with her or booze with her or beat her. Now, from the time I was six, I was like a Charles Dickens Oliver Twist or David Copperfield out on the streets. Now, when you come from a family like that, Sam, you're looking for attention. And when you come from a bad family like that, you never get it by being good. You only get it by being bad. So I was very, very bad, arrested a number of times, convicted a number of times, spent a lot of time in uh, jail on Main Street, and, and I was lucky to end up there because I discovered that right across the street was the library, which is a, I also spent a lot of time there. And being on the streets, I either was on a hockey rink or I was in a movie theater watching movies for five cents. And at the end of every movie, it said made in Hollywood. In my lifetime, my very long, lucky lifetime, I have seen America go from the hopeful Frank Capra, It's a Wonderful Life, to the very scary Stanley Kubrick, Dr. Strangelove, <laughs> and worse now, Coppola's brilliant Apocalypse Now. And when I came to the United States, I, loved, I, I, I wanted to come to the United States. I came illegally when I was 17 years of age. I came to be a gambler. A professional gambler was my dream. I mean, I know you end up a long time in performing in Vegas, the great crowds, just fantastic shows. That's where I wanted to be. From the age of 15 to 17, I spent all of my time on weekend 
poker games, all the money I could steal or earn or borrow, all of which I did very well, I lost <laughs> in all night session. I was always the first to lose and the last to leave. And after a year and a half, Sam, I said to myself, you know what? I am not here to make money. I'm here to make friends. But who wants to be friends with people like this? And, you know, I didn't drink and I didn't smoke. Now, all I played with eight guys. Two of them were in their 40s. All the others were in their 20s. I was the youngest at 15 and 16 years of age. And they always thought I was a religious fanatic because I didn't drink or I didn't smoke. And they asked, and they were always trying to ply me with beer, which I wouldn't take because of my mother, frankly. But the the, the truth was different, a little bit different. Uh, they asked me why I didn't drink and why I didn't smoke. And I told them, well, when I was 12, I stole a carton of cigarettes and I tried to hide the evidence and I smoked it all and I threw up. And so I never <laughs> smoked again, which is true. And then I said... The reason I don't drink, because I also stole a large carton of beer and again tried to hide the evidence. And I gulped it all down and threw it all back up so I, so I, don't, I don't drink. And then I pulled out a packet of condoms. And I said, when I was uh, 15, I stole a dozen condoms and I have 10 left. So every time, <laughs> so every time I sat down to play, they always say, hey, kid, how many condoms do you have? Anyway... The two books I got were Scarney on Dice and Scarney on Cards, and I memorized them. And in three months, Sam, I earned $700. Now, do you know how much money that is in 1970 to a 17-year-old kid? So what I did is I went out and bought this blue suit that you see on the cover of this book. This picture was taken in front of the old Flamingo Hotel, and I made my way to walked across the border with nothing on except that suit and six hundred dollars in my pocket. Got a ticket on the train to Las Vegas in northern Nevada. The train was stopped by an accident, but I didn't know that. I thought the immigration authorities had called, and since I was wanted by the Toronto police, that they were <laughs> stopping stop that Johnny Barber. We got to come and get him. So I hopped off the train, happy to leave an empty seat for them to find. The closest place I could get was uh, Lake Tahoe in the Calneva Lodge. It was like walking into an MGM musical with Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, and I was waiting for them to pop out of the woodwork. So I went to the end of the crap table. And I bought this Stetson so I'd look like I was not all hat and no cattle. To, and so I would look <laughs> over 17 years of age and nobody stopped me. So I started playing crap and I was doing well. Soon people were looking at me and I thought, oh, my God, they must know I'm only a kid and they're going to arrest me or something and send me back. And then soon everybody stopped and was looking not at me, but past me. So I turned around to see what they were looking at. When I turned around, in through those big glass doors came Frank Sinatra with his overcoat draped over his shoulder like an Italian Superman. He was literally arm in arm with Sam Giancana, the leading mafiosa in Chicago. Whom ah, I just read, there we go. There we go. Just read about on the front page of the paper that I left on the train and they were surrounded by three Italian Praetorian guard. Uh, Here was a week earlier I had seen as the clouds rolled by the Jerome Kern story at the Manor Theater. You might remember the scene. At the end of the movie Sinatra's in a white tuxedo 
on a white pedestal and he's singing Old Man River. And it was gorgeous. Now here he is a week later writing, walking right past me in That's real life. That's crazy. And how would I know that 20 some odd years later I would be his private writer for four years. So that's how that's how my life started. And I decided I didn't want to stay in Lake Tahoe because I quit gambling. And the reason I quit gambling, this may help anybody who is addicted to gambling. When I became a wizard at all the odds and permutations of the turn of the card. Now, my game was one single deck blackjack, and I always won. I did great in Las Vegas, did great for, but you could only gamble for a couple of hours. And there were no movie houses to go to, so I would go to the shows. And I saw Joey Lewis, the opening act for Lily St. Cyr at El Rancho. And I saw Edith Piaf at the Desert Inn. I saw Noel Coward, Mad Dog. I had more fun going to the shows and gambling, and then one day in the middle of a game when I was up $400, I stopped. And the reason I stopped, Sam, I was no longer emotionally attached to the game. I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. Yeah, I get that. As a scientist who's getting no emotional joy from this, so I quit, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get into show business because that's what I loved, the show business. And my heroes, you might not remember him, but he was the best of the bunch, was Jack Parr. Yeah, I know Jack Parr. Tonight show. And the reason I love Jack Parr is because he had conversations with interesting, entertaining guests. Just amazing. And I didn't know that people talked to one another. I thought they, sh they shouted or they punched them, each other. And then he opened his show with a monologue. So I thought, well, I'll become a, I'll do a stand-up. And that's in, indeed what I did. And my other hero, of course, was Edward R. Murrow, who almost lost his great news career when he did Harvest of Shame. It was the first documentary ever done about the exploitation of migrant workers on, on land owned by Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola told CBS, you know, you get them off of our land and off of your news or we're done with. So they gave him this celebrity show uh, where he smoked a cigarette for his sponsors and then talked to very That's famous so people. That's so interesting, dude. And I feel like, you know, there it's very interesting because when you, when I think there's people who look back on Hollywood's golden era and they're like, you know, all you had, to, you know, this whole saying is like in the '80s in LA. If you were a comic, you all you had to do was fly to LA, get off the plane, and someone offered you a sitcom. And I don't believe that's 100 percent true. That's a lot of romanticizing. But you know, there was, I guess there was, I don't know if there's more, or it just seemed like a lot of the people back then hit a lot of them. Like you knew all the names on all the walls. They were everybody was. You know, a celebrity, <clears throat> you know, for me and my style, I'm very uh, edgy. I like to tell truth. I've been doing it for 27 years, you know, and when I started, everybody wanted Seinfeld. And I, I just think of, you know, the opportunity has afforded to me in this new medium where, you know, 
you start a new medium with real people. This new medium we have here with podcasting where, you know, we go peer to peer, it's called. We, we go directly to the consumer. There is no uh, suit deciding who goes to the consumer. And it's a different time. But we are now starting to see an attempt to control that, which is interesting because you said the guy who did the uh, Jack Parr, who did the uh, story on Coca-Cola migrant workers and how there was this big backlash and like. We kind of got that with YouTube and Blue Chew, right? It's like yes. a bit, it's very yes. interesting. Uh, you know, when when we were starting in the business, you might remember that we had something called the fairness doctrine. You know, I was I was a very and and the reason it does not exist is because of Jim Garrison, which we will get to. But but when I started oh my God, in the really? business. When I started in the business and when John Kennedy was alive, a company could only own five radio stations or yep. five television stations or five newspapers. And there was a thing called the Fairness Doctrine. So if you were a, um, a an author or if you were a musician or a playwright or performer and somebody hammered you unmercifully, you could demand equal time and you could often get it. I have the only review ever ruled on by the Supreme Court of the United States. Really? Do you remember a movie called Soylent Green? Yeah. With Charles Heston? Yeah. And for people who don't know about it, it's, it's about the overpopulation gets so bad that, that the, the people's remains are turned into crackers, uh. which we would eat so we could have three squares a day. Anyway, <laughs> it was an absolutely dreadful, dreadful movie. And when I was reviewing it, I felt... I felt bad because I know people don't deliberately go out to make a bad movie. There are a lot of good people involved. So in the middle of my review live, I said, you know, I should say something nice about this film. The sets are beautiful. And then, Sam, like you, I felt guilty for not telling the truth. So I added, but the sets would be more beautiful if they'd been placed in front of Charlton Heston. Well, <laughs> The crew absolutely screamed and Time Magazine picked up the quote and the producer from 20th Century Fox called Bob Howard, the general manager of the station, and said, you get no more ads from us unless you get rid of Barber. And Bob Howard, who saved my job three times, said, well, my life, wife loves John, and so we'll have to do without your ads. But they only threatened. They never stopped doing the ads. But the producer demanded equal time, and Bob Howard said no. So he, uh, he spent five years going through the local courts in L.A., the Supreme Court in California. And five years later, his demand for equal time was ruled on by the Supreme Court of the United States. And Sam, what they did is they denied him because they said, quote, John Barber's reviews are of no public importance. <laughs> Dude. My John, that's amazing. Yeah, I, 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 for those who don't know what the fear doctrine is, I think you gave a little explanation. But it's basically uh, the U.S. requiring television and radio broadcasters to present contrasting viewpoints on controversial issues of public importance. And the reason this is, uh, and I, and this was part of the two-part uh, series of Reagan and Clinton destroying. Um, Basically. Oh, you are so right on. I, I'm so I'm glad you gave me that straight line. First of all, the reason is twofold that we lost the fairness doctrine. One is unbelievable story, which is detailed in the movie, the American media and the second assassination 
of President John F. Kennedy. When Jim Garrison, he had not gotten into court yet. And Andy, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I just, I want to d basically tell everybody really quick who Jim Garrison is because they might not know before we start getting into what is he doing because I think it's very important that people know because I just discovered this through, you know, our uh, Allie booking you on the show and I just discovered this guy. And I, so I want to get in before we start talking about his exact case. I want to talk about the, uh, can I, do you mind if I do a little description of Jim quick before that, John, and then I'll let you continue your, your point. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. So basically what uh, what is going on is that uh, Jim Garrison was a district attorney, I believe, in New Orleans, right? Yes. And who investigated 1963 assassination of President John F. Kennedy. His independent investigation, according to the movie, uh, according to research, uh, looked into whether there was a conspiracy through the government to assassinate the president. Can you give us a little more background on that, John? Because this is very interesting because you won't hear this in any school. You won't you, you won't hear this you, anywhere. Listen, you won't hear it any place except in the film, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. First of all, when John Kennedy was murdered in Dallas and the Warren Report came out a couple of years later, Jim Garrison believed the Warren Report. Because when I interviewed him first, he said, John, you know, I was with the FBI. I'm in the military. I was da at Dachau when it was liberated. And on the wall in his office was a picture of him sitting by the barbed wire fence and underneath it, lest we ever forget. It was only, again, an accidental meeting with Congressman Hale Boggs, who was the only dissenting member of the Warren Commission, whose dissent was never published. He's on a plane with Garrison, and he says, that kid could never use that old rifle with that crooked scope and shoot a rabbit. And Garrison went out and bought, bought three sets of the 26 volumes of the Warren Report. He had a set in his office, a set in his car, and a set at home, and he memorized it. And because Oswald had been in New Orleans, he opened an investigation. The first guy he was going to arrest was David Ferry, who was a pilot who probably flew somebody out of, of uh, Dallas. And, and David Ferry, just after his first right. questioning, conveniently committed suicide. He left oh two suicide Oh, my God, dude. He, yeah, dude. left two suicide notes in case he didn't find one. And Garrison <laughs> was then forced. <laughs> then forced, what he said, I had to arrest Clay Shaw because I didn't want to find two more suicide notes. Now, the the, the media and the government will tell you that Jim Garrison lost the trial in 1967 is when he arrested Shaw. He and who was Shaw again? Who was Shaw again? Clay Shaw was the secret handler, the CIA's handler of Lee Harvey Oswald in New, in, in New Orleans. He had another handler in uh, in uh, in Dallas, but the handler in in New Orleans was Clay Shaw, very successful, extremely successful businessman who was an, ex, uh, an executive at a company called Permindex. Permindex was set up by the CIA, a CIA corporation. The garrison could not convict, convince the jury of that. Now, when he get, this is really interesting about Clay Shaw. 
The government will tell you that Shaw, uh, he arrested uh, Shaw in 67. In the movie, you see the film clip of him on the news in 1967, Sam, saying we've solved this case. The Central Intelligence Agency murdered our president. We have the names. The money changed when you see the trial. Now, I'm just a kid, a struggling comic as it was, and I'm a street kid, you know, so I sort of have, like you, I have sort of street smarts. And I say to my friends, hold it. It's been two years since he's arrested this Shaw, and the government calls him a lunatic. Well, why don't they get out of his way so he can fall on his face? I lost some friend just asking that very, very simple question. He went to trial in 1969, January 29, 1969, serendipity, the birth date of my son that gave birth to a decent life for me because I never wanted a child again. That was just an accident. Any event, (laughs) it's announced he loses the conspiracy case. But he actually won the perjury case. Now, he had rock-solid evidence against Clay Shaw that would have gotten him 99 years. Now, I'm going to put that on pause a second just to bring up this fact that you're very, very well aware of. One of the things that uh, candidate Trump promised us, aside from ending fake wars and bringing the tropes, troops home from or overseas, that he was going to have all the CIA files open for us. But he caved into the Central Intelligence Agency because Congress mandated that last October all the files should be released. But CIA convinced Donald Trump it's against national security. Now, why a 55-year-old murder? threatens national security is beyond me. And we can't thank Oliver Stone's film for JFK for getting the Assassinations Record Act passed. But let me tell you what it is they do not want released. You and I know the government operates and their agencies all operate in secret. Yes. There's no file in the CIA that will come out and say, this is how we killed the son of a bitch. Yep. What? They did not want released were the garrison files. Now, there's a fellow named Jefferson Morley, seven years ago, brought suit, a Freedom of Information Act suit against the CIA, not to release the CIA files. They had garrison's files. And these are the files that named the names and everything. And garrison's files, the Warren Commission files will be released in the year 2039, Garrison's files won't be released until the year 2059 because they're the only files that speak the truth of the actual murderers of the president of the United States. Anyway, Jefferson Morley, for five years, fought in the courts. He finally lost in the uh, 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 courts in Washington, D.C. about six months ago, and the judge ruled that the CIA has a right to keep the garrison files secret. And guess who that judge was? Oh, no. That judge was Kavanaugh. Oh, Oh, my God! So now you're beginning to wonder, hold it, what is going on with the deep state? There is a whole lot more to this than we understand. Now, what I have... Oh, my God! I'm going to tell you some truths. You know, there are hundreds of great books out there. I've read them all. Hundreds of great films, not so great films. I've read them all, and I've made the two best, the two most definitive films on the assassination. 
If you go to my site, www.johnbarber.com. It's a great site. I'm looking at it right now. It's really nice. Not only can you see the Garrison tapes, the first one, which is an award-winning film, for nothing. You can now have access to the Garrison files that the CIA would not release. Now, I'm going to tell you a couple (laughs) of things. How are you doing that? Because Because Donald Trump won't do it. And I must tell you, I, again, I say, I was deported from the United States twice. What? That's, yes, I was deported when I was 17. They caught me in Los Angeles. I got into an argument with a young Republican. Uh, and I said to the guy, I didn't know anything, but I said to the guy, that's the first time I've ever heard those two words side by side. And so he called the FBI and reported this Canadian commie. And they, they came and arrested me, <laughs> sentenced me to Terminal Island for nine months in L.A. And the story, which is absolutely hilarious, it's like a Neil Simon comedy, is in my book, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, which I don't want to get into now because <laughs> we're talking about Garrison. But the, about the Clay Shaw, I released these files. I was deported again when I was 29. I was 46 years of age. When I could not find a job, Sam, in Hollywood, I had won five Emmys, the only one in the history of television to win Emmys for both uh, entertainment and information. And because I was so controversial, they thought, because I tried to book Jim Garrison and the first time, and we'll get to that story, uh, I couldn't get a job. Now, I said to you that I was a non-believer. Two days later, by accident, I had the opportunity to get the first of my four specials on NBC, which became Real People, the most successful show in the history of American television and the only show that actually changed the medium. Sadly, it changed it for the worse because when I got in to, uh, to television, you had to have a modicum of, ty- of talent and some intelligence and maybe a little charm. Those are all qualities that would get you barred from contemporary television now. And I take bows for being dubbed by Gary Deed, the critic at the Chicago Tribune, the godfather of reality television. But it's like wine. If you lean, leave wine out, it becomes vinegar. Yeah. And all the reality shows have turned to vinegar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all yeah. you need now to be a star on television in reality is an absence of shame. But let me me tell you two things that you would add. There's a Jewish expression called kvel. Yeah. There you will kvel when you start reading just two things. If you go to my site and you just Google, first of all, the Shaw files. And the reason I did that one first is because that's, of course, the guy that Shaw arrested. Now, I've got to uh, put that on hold a second and, and tell you a little bit about Congressman Hale Boggs, who was the guy that thankfully warned Jim Garrison uh, about the fact that there was a conspiracy. You can go to the congressional record. You look up Congressman Hale Boggs. He is telling the Congress. Hale Bobs? Hale Bobs? Hale Bo- uh, Congressman Hale Boggs, Louisiana, B-O-G-G-S. He is telling Congress that we need to investigate J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and the CIA because they lied to us about the murder of John Kennedy. It's on the congressional record. Months later, he gets on a private plane 
flies over Alaska, the plane disappears and his body disappears. They never found him. And guess who drove him to the airport? Who? Bill Clinton. Oh, my God. An early recruit by the CIA when he and his wife were in college. And Barack Obama was born to a mother who was in the C- CIA. Dude, I just got in a fight with some. I didn't get in a fight. I, I, I have to. I have to be very kind to my comedic friends. But somebody was putting up like, if you say something about Obama, blah blah blah, blah you're just an idiot. I go, uh, his mother was CIA, and his his grandfather is OG CIA. And the guy's oh, like, no, God. he's not. And I'm like, okay, oh, Sam, you are such a joy. I'd hug you if you weren't wearing that god awful sweater. That you're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I it, I, you know, all of the people that I sort of voted in uh, uh, for, I don't vote anymore. It's like Mark Twain said, if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. Yep. And then Garrison's favorite quote from him was that uh, if you if you don't read America's newspapers, you're uninformed. But if you do, you're misinformed. Yeah, it's so, so true. What, that is what's happening today. These truths. And any of it quickly about Obama, I, you know, it was Ron Paul that I first time I ever put a bumper sticker on my car because it said the guy that Jefferson would vote for. And like Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders could have put the election as a third party candidate, at least into the House of Representatives. His crowds were large as large as Trump's, but they were half their age. Trump's were 50 year olds and, and, and Bernie's are 25 year olds. And I savaged Bernie so severely the first time I ever said to anybody, anybody, go fuck yourself with the Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and of course, I was demonetized by, by YouTube. So, I, <laughs> so what I did being because I was a successful comedian for years, my mentor was Red Fox. And I gave Red Fox his first break on entertainment television, which read led to Sanford and son. His real name is John Sanford. And his brother's name was Fred. That's why he called himself Fred, because his brother died early and he he loved his brother. And you can also see the clip of him with the funniest ad lib ever in television. You go to go to that uh, that site. Anyway, back to the business of, of Obama. I was so upset. I was too angry to even write jokes about it. So what I did I wrote these wonderful, funny lyrics to that old black magic. And if you go and Google on YouTube, John Barber sings the Obama blues. It is, it is absolutely hilarious. Okay, now I want to get back okay, to Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll look that up. But I want to get back. Dude, man, you're blowing my mind. You are blowing okay. my mind. It's like, it's, it's you know, I, I don't want to get too much into Trump right now because we're discussing this JFK thing. But it's sure. like... You know, I remember when Obama, you know, I, I, when Obama got elected, I was a lot more naive. You know, my parents were both Democrats, blue collar, hard workers. Uh, you know, the, I guess at the time we associated Democrats with, you know, multiculturalism for the people, all that stuff. Republicans, you know, I'm just being honest with you. Republicans represented, you know, fat cats 
I, you know, I remember my dad who worked 90 jobs just to make a little scratch. And his big moment yes. was when he joined the, the Cortland Country Club. And it was such a big thing for him because it was like status for him and his hard work, you know. And I remember I just I, I hated the country club just because I, you know, I was I was like I was I was I was a blue collar to the bone, dude. And I didn't hate these fat cats. You know, it's upstate New York. No one's a fat cat. You and I are so in tune because it was Reagan who destroyed the unions. Yeah. It was But about Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, and I don't say this as an opinion, it is an absolute fact and it is in the film. He is by far the worst president in the history of the United States, even more so than Bush. Bush lied us into a rock lied us into Iraq and destroyed that ancient biblical culture. But Clinton destroyed the United States of America. First of all, he signed NAFTA, yeah. which sent all our jobs overseas. Yeah. Then he repealed Glass-Steagall, yeah. which, which prevented Wall Street from gambling with the, with the economy. I lost a $900,000 home because of that, and millions Jesus. of other people lost their homes. Nobody was charged or went to prison. But the worst thing that he did is he signed the Communications Act in, in the early 1990s and put 95% of all America's media in the hands of five corporations. Yep. Now, I have, I have the limit of friends on Facebook, uh, and half of them are Trump supporters and half of them are Trump haters and they don't have civil conversations between <laughs> one another anymore, which is in, in uh, which is indeed sad. But I've said to the the leading Trumpaholic of the entire bunch is that one of the reasons that I made the American media in the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, because when your boy Trump was running, he brought up fake news. And it sounded like Jim Garrison. So I went back to the three hours of tapes that I have when I interviewed Jim on September 5th, 1981, Sam, and I replayed them. And it was like he was talking to us today about the media. And I never included anything in the Garrison tapes about the media because at the time I was making $30,000 an hour. So I wasn't above. To <laughs> you don't want to rock the boat. Nope. You don't want to rock the boat. You know how much money that is today. But in any event, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I am a storyteller. And that, and Jim Garrison's story was the most amazing. Now to the, the, the Shaw Files. Is if you go to my site and you just look at the Shaw Files, here's one of the things that you will learn. And this is the reason that uh, a suit was brought by Jim Garrison against NBC. NBC sent one of their leading producers who worked for the Central Intelligence Agency and the CIA down to get uh, Jim Garrison's leading witness, Perry Raymond Russo, who was present with David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald and, and Shaw when they were talking about the triangulation shooting of John Kennedy. After the arrest of Shaw, Perry gave himself up. He just ran to the offices and say, I had nothing to do with it, but I am a witness to that. So he was one of the lead witnesses. Well, <coughs> NBC, 
offered him a job in New in Los Angeles, a $50,000 job a year at an insurance company to get out of Garrison's jurisdiction. And they were coming down to cement the deal in Louisiana. And Perry Raymond Russo called Garrison, Sam, and said, what should I do? And Mr. Garrison said, Perry, I hate to ask you, but would you wear a wire? So he wore a wire. And there it was, NBC's leading producer sent to destroy a perfectly legitimate, important case, criminal case. It was clearly obstruction of justice. NBC should have lost their license. And Sarnoff should have been in prison as a producer. But in any event, the FCC had no choice but to give Jim Garrison equal time at 11.30 at night, all of which is in the movie. And there you see Garrison on television explaining why Oswald couldn't have done this. It was the CIA. The owners of the country, Sam, saw this, shit their pants on television and said, I hold it. We can't have this kind of truth on television anymore. And immediately the fairness doctrine and equal time were scuttled, never to be heard again. Now, I told my Trumpaholic friend, that's the reason I made the movie. Donald Trump could solve America's problem now. Because you notice that the First Amendment, the only most important thing that Thomas Jefferson and Franklin and all the rest were worried about was freedom of speech. And the beginning of our movie stops starts with Jefferson talking about that, with John Kennedy talking about that, and Mark Twain talking about that. And all Trump has to do, he doesn't have to fire a shot or send a drone. All he has to do is pick up his pen and reverse that Communications Act and do not let any one person own more than seven television or radio stations and newspapers. Now, when I was a kid, you may won't remember this, but if your father and mother's still alive, they would remember it. I used to listen. There were 1,500 different owners of television and radio stations, as I said. I used to listen all the time once a week to a real racist anti-Semitic named Father Coughlin. And next to Henry Ford, he was the most anti-Semitic, anti-black person I'd ever heard in my life. I never grew up to be anti-Semitic or anti-black. It didn't bother me. He just eventually went away. As long as nobody in the media advocates physical harm to any other human being, regardless of their beliefs, there should be absolute and total free press. We do not have it. We have, a, we have suppression of it right now. And thank God for you guys. You know, in the in the film, I described the internet as a box of Cracker Jack. It's full of nuts and corn. But once in a while, at the bottom of the box, there is this prize, like Sam Tripoli and Josh <laughs> Rogan and just Red Pill 78 <laughs> and Rogan, bunches yeah. of other people, whether you agree with them or not. Yes. You know what? Half of my friends on Facebook... I do not agree with, but I learn more from people I don't agree with than my friends. So that's why I have them there so we can have these discussions. Now, back to the business of Clay Shaw. One of the things that Garrison could not prove that Shaw was CIA. But what he did, he tried to convince the jury of two things. One of the things he tried to convince the jury of was that there might have been an economic reason for Clay Shaw wanting John Kennedy dead. 
because he and two other guys had paid a million dollars for a nickel mine in Cuba. And when John Kennedy failed the air support at the Bay of Pigs, uh, Castro kept the nickel mine. Now, John, and, did that? Is that what gets Kennedy killed? Is that? I mean, is that no, one of the big things? Was the Bay of Pigs, the Federal no, Reserve, Israel no. not getting nuclear weapons? I've heard several different uh, discussions on that. Okay, first of all, it wasn't the Bay of Pigs that cost Alan Dulles's job as the uh, head of the CIA, because he is, and his assi assistant, Earl Cabell, had said there'd be a quick revolution in Cuba to get rid of Castro if we start the Bay of Pigs. I will get to another interesting story about it. The second in command of intelligence who wanted to see me after my movie came out. What got John Kennedy murdered is that you see it in the film. It's three, three to five weeks before he's murdered. In Dallas, he's on the front lawn with Walter Cronkite, a Project Mockingbird CIA asset, along with uh, yep. uh, Dan Rather. Dan Rather was the first one to lie to us about the direction the head moved, was supposedly a shot from the rear when he was obviously hit from shots from 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 the front. In any event, oh, oh uh, what got him killed is he told Cronkite. We are withdrawing a thousand of Eisenhower's advisors from Vietnam. There will be no Americans in Vietnam. We will send them all the supplies and munitions and guns and planes they need, but it's their battle and their fight to win. When John Kennedy was murdered, the day before, and it's in the film, is there is a memo that is signed by one of the deep state's assets. And this memo reverses John Kennedy's policy about withdrawing troops from Vietnam. And within two days, Lyndon Johnson sent 50,000 troops to Vietnam. If you have ever been in the army or if you've ever had anything to do with the government, they can't do anything in 24 or 48 hours. It takes them months and months yeah. and months. Yeah. And there was, all, aside from the 50,000 troops, were another 20,000 body bags. Why were they making so many body bags if they didn't know they would be coming back full of young men? Yeah. And now we're hearing stories about, uh, and this to me, when I when I when I go to sporting events, you know, I did mushrooms at the World Series. Uh, full disclosure, <laughs> and uh, I saw how military. It's all the military message there. It, you're bombarded with it. But if people knew from the research I've done and guests I've had on that they sent heroin back in these coffins with these so dead soldiers, man. These are sons and daughters of people who joined to protect democracy and their country, and they were sent into a war, another banker war, and on top of that, not only did they lose their life, but they were used as drug mules being sent back. I don't know why people don't care. There's I mean, a, well, there, there was a whole they, movie made about it. A lot of them care, but they know they cannot do anything about it. I mean... Uh, as I said earlier, when Mark Twain said if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let it uh, vote. You know that I do not vote. Uh, uh, I don't even vote. I have General Motors stock. 
and I can vote in General Motors stock, and I used to, and I thought, well, hold it. I have no say over the design of the car or how many miles the carburetor can get. I'm not doing this anymore. I don't. So I just connect the, collect the royalties and the dividends that they send me, and that's the end of it. But let me tell you some shocking truths, both about Clay, how smart Garrison was. When he arrested Shaw, not only did he research their background, he researched the background of the Central Intelligence Agency, created in 1947. And on his deathbed, Harry Truman, who started it, said it was the worst mistake I ever made. Yeah, they do this a lot. I, I'm really over these politicians on their deathbeds thinking they can get <laughs> some kind of like love back by admitting to this stuff. Like, you know, a Woodrow Wilson at the end was like, oh, I shouldn't have made the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, dude, kiss my ass. <laughs> You know, you brought up the Federal Reserve and you brought up Israel because I get a lot of people, I mean, thousands of them talking to me about Mossad did it and the Federal Reserve did it. They did not do it. Okay. Because only the federal government can block an investigation into a crime. No, no Mossad can do that and no Federal Reserve can do that. But in the movie, you see that. What John Kennedy did a year and a half before he was murdered, he signed Executive Order 11110. This called for the printing of Treasury notes as constituted by the Constitution of the United States. We should have the Treasury printing our money. And the reason he did it was, in 1963 and 62, if you borrowed money, let's say you lost your show and you wanted to build a new set, or your farm burned down, you want to borrow money from a bank, the Federal Reserve charged 21% in the early 60s. Just ask your father about Reagan. It was worse than that. So in, in what, what happened is Kennedy said, you know, we should print our own money. And the money is, I have some of that money. They are oh. silver notes. You can redeem them. And if you wanted to borrow $10,000 from your own government, you could pay it back at 1.5%. Well, any idiot knows that in a year, the privately owned held, uh, the Federal Reserve is owned by six private families. Yes. They would all be on food stamps if John Kennedy had lived. The moment he is pronounced dead at Parkland Hospital by Dr. McClellan, Garrison showed me the death certificate, a bullet to the right temple, cause of death, those printing presses stopped. Also, the other thing that John Kennedy was doing he was trying to get APAC, the American-Israeli Political Action Committee, uh, registered as a foreign lobby. Indeed, they are a foreign lobby. Now, you cannot blame Jews for saying never again after what happened in Germany. For sure, but man. They, but they, what they do is they lobby for Israel. They don't lobby for the United States. As a matter of fact, we have 22 leading dual citizens, uh, Israeli-American citizens, who determined our foreign policy in Iraq and our domestic policy. And I called for, I did an open letter to Harry Reid, who voted for it, and I said, hold it. Teddy Roosevelt said 100 years ago, only 100% Americans should hold office where any kind of policy is Couldn't determined. agree more. And I said, you don't find any dual citizen Iranian Americans or Irish Americans 
or, you know, Scotch Americans or Chinese Americans. They're all Israeli Americans. That should not be legal. And of course, when the, the, the YouTube saw that, they demonetized that and I had to take that open, open letter down. Now, the other thing he was trying to do, aside from getting them into a court, he demanded that Israel open Demona up for inspection for the now is this JFK or Garrison did this? Who did this? John Kennedy did okay, this. Okay. Not Garrison. Yeah. John Kennedy demanded they open. Ben Gurion resigned because he refused to yeah. let and what, what you're it, talking about, John, for those who don't know, is the Israeli nuclear what, uh, facility. Is that what you're talking that, about? That's right. That's right. Uh. And you may remember it because Israel is the only country, first of all, without defined borders. But it's also the only country in the world that has not signed the nuclear non-proliferation pact. They have yet to sign it now. They benefited from uh, John Kennedy's death. And you might remember 20 years ago, an Israeli scientist went public and said, we have 150 nuclear bombs. They put him in solitary confinement for 10 years. Now, we all know that Israel and the deep state have been salivating over an attempt to overthrow and take over Iran. You may uh, recall, I, I posted this on my Facebook because I recall that, Wes, you remember the name Wesley Clark? Yeah, of course, seven, uh, the hammer nail, hammer nail speech. Yes, yes, uh, uh, Wesley Clark was on Democracy Now! God, that's the only time you hear the word democracy in this country anymore. <laughs> anyway, it was, it was in 2012, and he said that the Secretary of Defense at Rumsfeld showed him a slip of paper. And on this piece of paper, he said, here's are seven countries that we're going to take out in the next 10 years. Now, six of those countries are gone. The one country that's not gone is Iran. And I th always thought if Jim Garrison were alive, he would say to Donald Trump what he said to me on November 5th, 19. 81, when I asked him, Mr. Garrison, do you think the president runs the country? And he said, John, I did until they murdered John Kennedy. And I'm going to tell you from here on in, no president will run the country. And I am totally convinced that one of the reasons that we are having so many problems and so many disruptions on the media is that Donald Trump realizes he does not run the country. Now, a lot of people who follow him or the Q people who follow him, they believe there's some sort of secret plan at work, but he does not run the country. We all know that now. I, I, I completely agree with that. You know, it's like, and, and for me, man, you know, on the show, we talk about this a lot. You know, when I talk about Israel, I always have to do this disclosure because I, I feel like there's powers out there to be that are looking to take people out that talk openly about this stuff like you, me, John, and everybody in this room who, and everybody listens to the show. You know, to me, there are there is a very powerful group of people at the top. They are not Jews. They are not Muslims. They are not Christians. They might be Catholics, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> Jesuits, international banking, whatever it is, man, they use these religions as masks to walk amongst us. And the reason I really push that hard is because 
if there comes a day where this all comes to a head and there's a war going on, our Jewish friends who are just like blue collar people like us who just want to feed their family, take care of their stuff, they're going to bear the blunt of this bullshit. And these people at the top are never going to feel anything because they never feel anything. I wonder, John, if there, I mean, if there'll ever be war, if it wasn't for this group of people who seem to infiltrate every group at every high level. Again, not Jews, not Muslims, not Christians. This this group, I'm just going to call them lizard people. Not saying they are, but we can just call them that. And that just infiltrate these groups. They get us all the fight. with. You know, it's like when I'm Armenian, dude. Uh, I know about the Turkish aggression. But when I look at Turks and I look at the, the young Turks, they're probably Kazarians. And when you go back, <laughs> who are the Kazarians? You know, and like... The fight, I do. Does the average Turk hate the average Armenian? No, but these people get us to hate each other and fight over stuff that you know they. Why they make cash? They make us all fight with each other. Sam, you and I are like Siamese twins for fun. I love. I'm so glad you brought up the business because often you have to. If, if, if you say something truthful about Israel, and Israel is very smart because they shut down that kind of conversation by accusing everyone. And they said this to uh, Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! We do it deliberately to stop anti-Israel talk to, by calling people anti-Semitic. A Jew, a prominent Jew, said that on her, her show. So I would suggest if anybody has the least sort of inkling that I might be anti-Semitic, which I am not, I suggest you, you remember in 1972, the Munich Olympics? Yes. Okay. I was a critic at Channel 11. And what we used to do is we used to watch the feed from The Tonight Show to New York to watch Johnny Carson's monologue. Now, I had had, I had, had a, uh, a long, long feud with Johnny Carson because I had been, I had been a very successful stand-up comic on Merv Griffin's show. And when Merv went to CBS to do his show late night at CBS, he signed me, had Westinghouse sign me as his replacement. And wow. Westinghouse used the ratings that I got as his replacement to get David Frost's money down. So I never got it. I was booked after my third or fourth appearance on the Merv Griffin Show by Johnny Carson. And guess the date I was booked? What day? June 6, 1968. Oh. The day they shot Robert Kennedy. Oh, my God. And, I, and, I, and they tell me to come down to the office. And I'm telling him and his producer and staff, you cannot do a show tonight. You just can't. And I said, you know, and they said, well, people need to be entertained. You can't entertain. You just killed the next president of the United States. They just murdered John Kennedy a few years ago. You cannot do it. And I can't do it. And they told me, if you don't do it, you never get on. Well, you know, I was aware of the fact that if you got on like Rodney Dangerfield and Steve Martin and all these guys I knew and used to work with, well, you, your, your career could be made. Yeah. Worst mistake I ever made in my life was doing that show. I wanted to just go down and tell the audience from my heart how I felt. So I hadn't, and I, Carson called me to sit down next to him. And you know what he smelled like? He smelled like my mother. He smelled like an absolute, total drunken slut. With <laughs> Johnny Carson? Johnny, yeah. And again, I must tell and, and, and you know the way I got on the Tonight Show is after I became the private writer to Frank Sinatra, 
Sinatra knew the story of me and Carson and couldn't wait to book me on the show. You go to my site and you Google John Barber on The Tonight Show with Sinatra. You'll see a monologue there that's as funny today as it was. It wasn't. And then the story is in my book again. uh, Your mother's not a virgin. I must tell you something, Sam. I'm going to send you three guys a copy of this book. I would love that, dude. It is the best book ever written about anybody in show business ever since Ben Hecht's a child of the child of the century. Now, we don't have time. I could tell you hundreds of hilarious show business stories, but I wanted to stick to the business of the assassination. Except when we were at Channel 11, we uh, Munich happened. And so I had written a review, and I'm waiting like 25 other people in the newsroom to have Johnny Carson talk about it because we knew Jack Parr would have. He just he wouldn't have had an audience. He would have just talked for an hour to to his audience on tele, on uh, at home. And Carson comes out. He does this horrible joke about Doc Severinsen's jacket and about Ed McMahon's drinking. It was so repugnant after this horrifying <laughs> tragedy of the Olympics. And these athletes being slaughtered by Black Tuesday, I tore up the review. I went on television and ad-libbed for four and a half minutes what it must be like to be a Jew in this world today. Within two days, not only did it get 5,000 requests for copies, I got a call from Neil Simon. Neil Simon was being given the Heart of Israel Award at the Beverly Hilton Hotel and said, would you come down and emcee it? And as a result of that, my film became the official fundraising film for the United Jewish Appeal for the years 73 and 74 and made $30 million. And I was made an honorary Jew. And when I went (laughs) down to the Hilton and I got this great, oh, and I must tell you, Neil Simon wrote the liner notes. My my first album was called It's Tough to Be White. And the liner notes are by Dick Gregory. My second, and you can see that on my second, man, my second album, man. based on my reviews, was called I Met a Man I Didn't Like. <laughs> and, and Neil Simon did the liner notes, and he called me six months later. He said, John, I must tell you, that's the least successful writing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> John. Listen but in any event, you can Google that, and it is still moving to this day. So, John, I, as we wrap it up here, because, I, I mean, honestly, John, I got to be, be honest with you, dude. Every show, I'm like, oh, I hope this goes well. I, I, you know, it's going to be a show. Every show you go, this is going to be the best show ever. But, man, I'm really blown away by you. I mean, like, you've done so much. I'm just a dick joke comic. I'm just a dude no, no, you're not, trying Sam. to grind, you know. But, man... You- you are a wonderful human being. As a critic, I'm going to tell you, you are so much more important than I am. What I have done, it is a greeting card to America and a thank you to America for the the, the magnificent life, the magnificent career they gave me. Now, you know what? There's no question about it. I hear people say, you know, that memories we had of the great movies and performers and television and movies that were in the 40s and the 50s and the 30s, that that our government has long destroyed. And I tell them, hold it, hold it. They have not destroyed them. 
they self-destruct because the older you get, the more you realize it's all bullshit. Yeah. All of those movies were bullshit. But we and we live in That's the bullshit a... capital of the world. But thank God we still have the freedom in this country, as limited as it is, to say it's the bullshit capital of the world. So you have a much more important platform in this day and age than I have. But my film will outlive every movie, every book ever written by the assassination. Now, aid. Only 80% of the people in this country now uh, would uh, uh, believe the Warren report. But in 100 years, 100% will know that Jim Garrison solved the case, which is an open, cold case at Justice Department as we speak. So what I would like to say to you, Sam, the most important stuff about the assassination we haven't even gotten to. So sometime maybe... Maybe on April Fools, for God's sake. I would I love to. I just want to do this real quick, John. I want you to give us, and I mean, like, we can stay for as long as you want to stay. Tell us about this trial. Like, I want to hear some details about uh, what happened uh, in this okay. trial. Okay, I won't keep you any longer. No, and no, I'll no, tell no, you no, that dude. I'm in no hurry. I, I, I just think you're a busy man. I don't want to. We have time. Uh, I just want to know. Tell me about, I, I, we're going to watch hey, the Sam, files. Sam, you know what? My wife said, let's move to Las Vegas because it's like your mouth. It's open 24 hours a day. <laughs> so that's why we're here. And your mouth seems to be too. But I'm just going to tell you a couple of quick things. If you go to my site, www.johnbarbersworld.com, just Google the Shaw and the ferry, you will know everything you need to know about the assassination and how Garrison solved it. Now, I'm going to tell you some tidbits that Garrison had. Little known, when he arrested Garrison, he was so anxious to protect his case and Garrison's rights that not only did, go, did he go through a grand jury, he had a special panel of three of the leading judges in Louisiana hear the case before he did anything. Clay Shaw's attorney was a guy named Diamond, who happens to be in the film, by the way. And what Clay Shaw did at the, before the three-judge panel, he introduced the 26 volumes of the Warren Report, because Clay Shaw is never mentioned in the, in the Warren Report. The three-judge panel reads the 26 volumes and calls Jeez. them inadmissible because they're ruled hearsay. They say publicly and legally it was never an investigation. If anything, it was a cover-up of an investigation. Oh, my no, God. No media ever, ever reported that. Now, when it comes to Clay Shaw, this is how smart Garrison was. He could not prove that, and, and the jurors told him, if you could prove in some way that he was CIA, he said on the stand he committed perjury. He lied. He was, was CIA. But if you could prove it, we'll convict him. They only took eight minutes to convict him of perjury. And now, with with the business of uh, of, of 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 the trial, uh, some of the things that uh, he uh, introduced, he got ten years of his employment records and his tax records, all with Permandex and a Mississippi boating company, all run by the Central Intelligence. Agency. Oh my God! Well, not enough to convince convince a jury, but then what? Get this. Get this. He has 
one of the magnificent things about Jim Garrison, I'm going to tell you a very personal story. In 1982, when I was making the documentary, he was on his deathbed. And I, uh, and I only had dealings with his daughter, Elizabeth. At the time, uh, it was 1992 when I tried to make the film. Oliver Stone was in trouble with uh, 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 the Washington Post and everybody over trying to make his movie. So, uh, uh, and, 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 and what had happened, he had asked uh, Mr. Garrison before he got sick if he could also make a documentary as well as a film JFK. And Garrison said no. I want John Barber to do it because John Barber not only lost the best morning show in America in Los Angeles, he lost the most successful show in the history of television, real people trying to tell my story on national television. So John's going to tell, uh, uh, tell, tell the story. Now, the interesting thing about Clay Shaw and Garrison, when Garrison was on his deathbed, his wife had divorced him because of the stress of being followed by the CIA and the FBI everywhere. They were uh, they were all over. The, they had no life, so the wife left them. Got a lot of money, but being lonely, she married a guy that used up all her money, so she was broke. On his deathbed, Garrison said to his daughter, Elizabeth, Liz, get the other kids together. He's got five kids. And get me a marriage license and get your mother over here. I'm going to remarry her. So the mother comes back over, Liz comes back over and looks down at him and he's, he's frail and thin and sickly. She says, Jim, for God's sake, it didn't work the first time. <laughs> and, and, and he said, well, Liz, it's going to work this time because I'm not going to be around too much longer. So let's get this over with. And she said, why on earth are you doing this? And, she's, and he said, honey, I hate to tell you this, but I'm a cop and I know that your husband, ex-husband, didn't do well by you. I have a very large pension as a judge, and when I'm gone, you're going to live on it. They got married, and she lived on his pension. Oh. And that's the kind of man that Jim Garrison was. And the other thing that he did is that Clay Shaw was an absolute and total raving, massadistic, sadistic homosexual. That's how he lived his lifestyle. And he man, lived it in seems private. big in this thing that, you know, it's but, like, and to well, me, man, John, I, mean, I just want to get this out. Like, yeah. I just feel that like the demonization of the gay lifestyle is done purposefully to push these guys into the darkness and that now they can that, be blackmailed yeah. and put into positions. That, that's and true. But in the case of Jim Garrison, he told his staff, none of this is to be mentioned in the court when we're doing the conspiracy trial. We are going to save it for the perjury trial. And this is why. There was a guy named Harvey Lesnick from Northwestern University sent an affidavit letter to Jim Garrison saying his best friend lived with Clay Shaw for 12 months and he replaced another homosexual who lived there 12 months. And Clay Shaw kicked that guy out because after 12 months he had a heterosexual transsexual operation and when he became he became a she Shaw kicked, kicked her her out. They had God. three 20 they had three 20 year old $20 male hookers all with affidavits and there they are in the files that they had sex with Clay Shaw. David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald. Harvey Oswald is definitely a bisexual monster. <laughs> yeah, no question about it, because that was the, the one picture that we see of Oswald with all these people is at a gay party. But that's that's you know, that's their lifestyle. But you're right, they could have been blackmailed in, in, in any kind any kind of hostilities. Now, 
What Garrison said was, this is never to be introduced in this trial or don't report it to the newspapers. But when he won the perjury conviction, he said to his staff, Clay Shaw is now going to sing like a bird. You're going to know all about Helms and the CIA and intelligence and the deep state in this country because this very prominent, successful businessman in New Orleans doesn't want his life destroyed because the other affidavit they had was from a guy named James Whalen, W-H-A-L-E-N, offered $25,000 by Clay Shaw and the CIA to murder Jim Garrison. What? Yes, 10,000 down and 15,000 later. Now he went to Garrison and he filled out these affidavits and he said, Mr. Garrison, I contemplated it. I'm ashamed to say this, but I didn't do it because I was being paid to get rid of you. And I can't do it because it's just too big a crime to commit. My daughter is deathly ill. And the CIA and Mr. Shaw promised me the best doctors in America to cure my daughter if I murder you. But I just can't do it. That would have gotten Shaw 99 years in prison. And Garrison said, you're going to see him cave in. Well, of course, the government knew he was going to cave in. There in the very opening of the movie is a 1967 CIA memo released accidentally in which they tell the legal department they have to help Clay Shaw, otherwise Jim Garrison's going to have a successful conviction of conspiracy in the murder of John Kennedy. And that alone, it doesn't say that the CIA murdered him, but they are complicit in trying to sabotage a very legal investigation. It was obstruction of justice. Now, to me, one of the most interesting things in the fairy file... That's the guy that Garrison wanted to arrest first before he committed suicide. He was a pilot. And uh, in the fairy files, there are three things that are dreadfully, dreadfully important. Show you how smart Garrison is. The very first thing that he did is he gathered all the media reports from every source, newspapers, radio, and television, the day it happened. And from Parkland Hospital, the first thing he gets from Dr. Perry is that the throat wound is an entrance wound. First thing he gets. He gets new, and this is all in the, on these files. He gets newspaper headlines that say, second gunman at large. But, and, and they also has reports of, uh, they have a audio recording from Air Force One on its way to Washington, D.C., not with the casket. The casket was flown back in a helicopter someplace else, not in an Air Force One as Jackie Kennedy thought. There are generals on record on this audio recording talking about the fact that one lone nut couldn't have done this. And there it is. Now he could never introduce. It was too late to get it into. He found it too late to get it into into the uh the trial. But then to me, uh, two things. He said very simply, John, you know, when there's a bank robbery, they put up uh, a, a, a circumference wall of cop cars to surround the bank to stop any getaways. Here we have the FBI in the radio reports and the Dallas police saying, withdraw all these. So there is no surrounding you know, roadblocks to oh, these yeah, cars. Oh, yeah, dude. Away and, but then, you will remember this. 
even if you were not born. You have all seen Lee Harvey Oswald on television and somebody, newspaper man, is saying to him, did you murder the president or did you kill the president? And Lee Harvey Oswald says, this is the first time I've been told about this or made aware of this. I need some legal representation. Now, he says that, but what people do not know, he says it after being in Chief Curry's office for 10 hours with 15 cops and FBI and CIA. Jim Garrison found a man who was in that meeting. Now, Chief Curry said, well, we don't have room for a stenographer. We do not have room for a recording machine. So no records are kept of the most horrendous, horrific murder in the history of the United States of America and maybe in the entire world. It is almost as comparable as killing six million Jews because the murder of the president resulted in millions and millions of innocent people being killed. Death, all dude. Military industrial around. complex. So in any event, this guy says to Jim Garrison, nobody ever asked the question because here you have all these uh, six feet ten cops with the uh, magnums and stetsons. And whenever an innocent, now only it only takes a handful, as you pointed out, to disrupt and distract anything. There were innocent cops in that room who tried to ask questions of Oswald and were stopped by the suits. So he was never asked in those 10 hours, did you ever kill the president or, or, or tip it? And the reason he didn't ask, Garrison said, is because if you're a 20 or 21-year-old kid, and you're surrounded by these guns and somebody says, did you kill the most important man in the world? You know you're going to say, God damn it, I didn't do that. I'm just a patsy. They just sent me here to infiltrate a group. Uh, that- they didn't even want to give him a chance they, to even say right. that. And, and all of these things are in these files. And I must say, as much as I love my film and Garrison and, and, and Oliver Stone's films and the great books I've read, you only have to look at these two files. You can Google them on YouTube. One is 17 minutes long. One is only eight minutes long. You watch that 25 minutes. You never have to watch anything else the rest of your life to know that the United States government murdered John Kennedy. They were aided and abetted by the media, all proven in the film. It is now a cold case. In 1979, the House Select Committee concluded four shots had been fired. They found the dicta belt of Officer H.B. McLean that was left open, recording all the gunshots. They turned it over to the Justice Department, asked them to further investigate, which they have never done. And all that matters, you know, I must tell you something, Sam. Everybody contacts me about 911, about Robert Kennedy, about uh, John Lennon and uh, and rock star murders and all the rest of it. And I say, don't talk to me about it. The linchpin to it is all is the murder of John Kennedy, which is an open cold case at the Justice Department. You open that and it unravels and solves every political crime committed in America. Final uh, questions because we got rapid on. I know you got to go. Hey, George Bush, uh, was he on site in Dallas? Uh, because we know he might be one of the three hobos. Uh, one of the things that Trump did release, one of the many um, 
uh, documents that were released in the, in the JFK dump. One was that put George Bush Sr. in Dallas. And we also know that during Reagan's assassination that the Bushes met and had dinner with the Hinckleys the night before, that they they, they are old oil uh oil tycoon families, friends from way back. Uh, is George Bush implicated at all in these assassinations? Well, there's. we can only talk about facts and truth. First of all, there is a picture of George Bush, supposedly George Bush, in the film at Dealey Plaza. But the truth of, of the matter is that uh, the Bay of Pigs oper uh, operation was codenamed Zapata. Zapata was the name of George Bush's oil company. The oh two boats my that, God. The two boats that transported the Cuban exiles were called the Barbara, his wife, and the Houston, where he had his oil company offices, which means that George Bush was a major player at the Central Intelligence Agency from the very, very beginning. And also there was a memo in the film from Edgar Hoover, you know, because FBI, they have their own, uh, their own platform to consider and the CIA wants to preserve their platform and their bailiwick. J. Edgar Hoover often hated the CIA and he outs in the movie, in a, in a, in a document, the fact that George Bush was in Dallas on November 22nd, snitching on a guy named Parat as a possible assassin. Oh, my God, dude. This has been uh, one of my favorite episodes, here's, man. Here's, here's, hold it. Here's what I suggest you do. First of all, I've got to get from Allison your address, the names of everybody there. I'm going to send you three books. But I suggest one night, if you get a chance... You, you you spend $2, go to Amazon, get your favorite beer or wine or whatever and your buddies. You sit down. It's two hours and 10 minutes, and it's broken up into 10, diff 10 different nine-minute segments, so it's easy to watch. You will literally be blown away just by the information, the facts, and the drama and the humanity of Jim Garrison. And at the end of the film, this is the last thing. When I spoke to Garrison, he gave me the names in 1981 of uh, dozens of people who should be arrested and questioned for the murder of John Kennedy. Some of them are still alive. So when I finished making my film two years ago, I put it, and you'll see it at the end of the film, I put together a 10 most wanted list of people who should be questioned who are still alive, and I delivered it myself to the Justice Department in the presence of my lawyer. <laughs> and the first one there is Dan Rather, who lied to us about the Zapruder film. The next one is Bill Moyer. Bill Moyer was the aide to Lyndon Johnson who ordered the bubble top removed in Dallas. And the third one was Barack Obama, who is president of the United States, should have signed an executive order demanding the release of all the CIA files. And then there are seven more on that. So that's how the movie ends and that's how this little interview will end. Final question. How heartbreaking is that picture with Jackie Onassis sitting there with those guys, knowing most likely that those people in that room, those smirking motherfuckers, excuse my language, John, these smirking guys taking pictures with her 
were most likely involved in the assassination of Ken. That, to me, is one of the most heartbreaking pictures I've ever seen in my life. If that was my mother, I would be going nuts on those dudes in those rooms. I would be payback, you know? I hate it when you say horrible words like smirking. I just, <laughs> you know what? I find it very difficult at this time in my life to either look at a picture of John Kennedy or a picture of Jim Garris. My heart, I, I, my heart just breaks when I look at it. I mean, I have a whole bunch of John Kennedy stamps. I can't even put one on an envelope. I just don't want to touch it. In any event, I can't thank you enough for having me on the show. Now, listen, you are a guy who's met. Oh, Jesus, I feel like you're my soul brother, for God's sake. But I would love to come back at some time when you want have another hour and a half that you want to explore the the, 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 the there is much more to this uh, Garrison JFK murder, and also since you are in show business and so successful as a comic, you will love, love, love the stories that I tell about all of the major comedians with with whom I uh, worked. And knew well. As a matter of fact, after I did my album, It's Tough to Be White, I got a call from Lenny Bruce when I was in San Francisco at the Hungry Eye. He was performing at a jazz club, doing mostly not his act anymore, but his court case. And he sp I was the last person that he spent a day with in his house before he opened at the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach and then was probably murdered by the L.A. police. That Dude. story in the book. Is just unbelievable. We'll get into that. I'd love to have a story about that. We haven't done a Lenny Bruce episode. I would love that. Dude, honestly, John, you are, I mean, you have an open door policy to come on the show anytime you feel that you uh, just want to come and talk to another comic about the world and what's going on. Uh, his website is johnbarberworld.com. That's, and Barber is B-A-B-B-A-R-B-O-U-R-S world, okay, dot com. He's got everything here, man. I mean, I'm looking at this so much stuff we could talk about. Uh, I, I real Dude, I mean, like, I always get, I, I love every episode we do, uh, but sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised by how incredibly, you know, beyond my expectations, this was an episode like that. I'm very thankful that you'd spend some time. I hope you're having fun in Vegas. I'm out in Vegas all the time. If there's ever a chance we could powwow and talk, maybe do a oh, live I show. Would, well, listen, I will treat you to Maggiano's because yes. not only is it great food, they play Sinatra all the time. And uh, what I will do, aside from sending the book, and thank you, and I must tell you, people will love, love, love the book. If they like to read it all about it, they will love the book. I'm going to send you the three books, and I'm going to send you a Las Vegas Golden Knights T-shirt so I that the next that. time we talk, you're wearing that. We'll do it, man. Maybe we'll do a live show, John, where we just sit down, and maybe I interview you live on stage in front of an audience, and we oh kind of go God. through your whole thing. I'd like to think that, I mean, I like Vegas Live. I've been thinking about moving there. That's a different story. But, you know, maybe we could do that somewhere live there where we just have a little a night with you and uh, you let me interview you and we just do some Q&A. But that's down the road. I'm open-minded to it. Again, he's John Barber. He came, he saw, he kicked a whole lot of ass. Uh, enjoy Vegas. Enjoy my Raiders. They're coming. And uh, we'll do it again soon, John. Oh, that is wonderful. I'm going to send you, I did a YouTube a 
Remember the movie Network? Yes. Howard Dale and Madison. Yes. I wrote a I wrote a thing for myself to perform about what would Patty Shayevsky right now for Howard Beale in this day and age. And I do it and it's filthy, which you would appreciate, but it's also hilarious. And I'm gonna email that to you please when do. I send when I send Allison a thank you note. Whatever uh, anything you got for us, we will take, brother man. You're the best. Have a great day. Enjoy your 2020. Guys, thanks so much for tuning in. I am going to be at the Phoenix. Arizona House of Comedy this week. So grab your tickets and then Oklahoma City and Fort Worth, Texas. Tim Fall Hats coming. We love you guys. God bless. Have a great day and we'll see you guys soon. Open your mind.